There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Red Box podcast. I'm Matt Jolly today talking about red boxes. Yes, on my Times Radio show, you can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1 on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or on the Times Radio app, where you can also listen to the Red Box podcast. Uh, we've been talking about red boxes, the history of red boxes. How are they made? And we've been hearing from some of the people who've put work into them and some of the people who've taken the work out and had to actually do it. Uh, so coming up, we'll hear from the man who makes red boxes for Minister and the King. And uh, we'll also hear from David Cameron, George Osborne, Ed Balls and lots of people who've worked in number 10 about uh, the stresses and strains of the Red Box. So that's coming up in our big thing in just a moment. But first, as we always do on a Friday, it's time for... The Columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio. And we say hello to India Knights. Hello, India Knights. Hello, Matt. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm not bad. I'm not bad. Uh, and uh, joining me in the studio, he's finally got up and got some trousers on. It's James Mar- How are you? I'm well. Well, seeing as with my dodgy connection last week, I was accused of making burbling and burping noises. <laughs> I thought I had to come in in person to make sure that nobody thought that was actually me rather than my dodgy well, phone. So if we get some burbling and burping noises today, that is just you. Yeah, that will, ju- that will just be me. I can't, you know, I can't promise that it won't happen. No, very good. <laughs> right. Uh, now, this is, this, is, this is great, this. So there's a... Um, the t- obviously, there's lots to talk about. AI, chatbots, can- will we all be replaced by robots? Can robots do the work of everyone? And so, uh, in for the Times today, uh, Eugene Smith for Redbox has got an AI chatbot to write a speech for a prime minister, for a new prime minister after the next election. Uh, and the- he's also asked various other AI websites to generate images of what they might look like. So you can go onto the website and have a look at it. So I've gone one stage further, and I've got an AI voice bot to voice up the speech of the robot speech. Anyway, so what we thought we'd do is take a listen to it. Imagine it, you know, all the crowds outside number 10, uh, helicopter overhead. This is the speech of the robot Prime Minister. My fellow citizens of the United Kingdom, today I stand before you with a sense of deep gratitude and humility as your newly elected Prime Minister. I'm honoured and privileged to have been chosen to lead our great nation at a time when we face unprecedented challenges and opportunities. In my first 100 days in office, I will focus on five key priorities that I believe are essential to securing a brighter and more prosperous future for our country. First and foremost, we must take decisive action to tackle the climate crisis. Second, we must prioritise investing in our public services. Third, we must focus on rebuilding our economy in a way that benefits all our citizens, not just the few. Fourth, we must prioritise investing in our young people. Finally, we must focus on building a more cohesive and inclusive society. These are just a few of the priorities that I will focus on in my first 100 days in office. I'm committed to working with all our citizens, regardless of their political affiliation, 
to deliver real and meaningful change for our country. I recognise that we face significant challenges ahead, but I am confident that, with your support and dedication, we can overcome these challenges and build a better and more prosperous future for all our citizens. Thank you, and God bless the United Kingdom. So, India, what do you think of that? Well, I think that there's a problem with the voice. He sounds um, very elderly and like he's well, got... Well, there were only a f- the website I used, there were only a few options. Uh, there, there was uh, um, uh, an American man, there was that slightly elderly man, and then there was Snoop Dogg. That would have option. been good. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have liked Snoop Dogg. And yes, because that man sounds like he's got a toffee stored inside his cheek. There was a slight whiff of um, Joe Biden, I thought. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But the content of the speech is absolutely bang on. I mean, it's terrifying. <laughs> it's, completely, it's completely plausible. It speaks very broadly. It's careful to signal its good intentions, but not make any actual sort of promises. And, um, yeah, it's perfect. It's a, it's a slightly exciting... I chopped it down a little bit, but, you know, for each heading, there's, like, more... All the waffle yeah, about... I, I, will, I will work to increase funding for schools, colleges and universities and to create new apprenticeships and skills programmes that enable young people... <laughs> and it's like, oh, literally, anyone could make this speech, James. Yeah, yeah well, I thought the robot was uh, significantly more charismatic than Keir Starmer. Um I thought the other interesting thing about the speech is that it is um, noticeably uh, sort of centre-left leaning. You know, it's all about investing in public services. It's not about that's interesting. We have a responsibility to you know keep keep finance and climate control, change. Number one taxes. priority is climate change. Yeah, and I mean, I wonder if that's because you know AI, you know, draws on the information that's out there in this net. And I think we're yeah, living yeah. in a moment of you know larger government. We're not living in you know the sort of the 80s when it's all cut, cut, cut public yeah, spending, yeah, yeah. cut taxes. So it's evidently kind of picked up on the political vibe, which is what a politician should do. You know, it's read the, it's read the room. But you're right, this isn't a speech that Liz Truss would make. No. Um, abs- although Liz Truss was in some ways more like a robot. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Even the robot isn't that robotic. <laughs> but in terms of content, for me, the big giveaway, if I'd have heard that or read it, the big giveaway that it wasn't real is the thank you and God bless the United Kingdom. Yeah, God at the end. bless the UK. Yeah, God bless the UK is wrong. But otherwise, you can see, you can, you know, you if you shut your eyes, you can imagine cheering crowds, waving flags, and clapping and popping open the corks. I mean, it's a it's a kind of one size fits all speech. With yeah, yeah. I for one welcome content. our robot overlords. Do you? Yeah, it sounds like they know what they're doing. In a way, though, I suppose what's really depressing is it it goes to show that so much of our political conversation, so much of what our politicians say, is generic, cliched nonsense. Down to policy, down to even like policy is just, yeah. you know, churning around and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it, yeah, it is, it is, it's a very good point. It's, actually, it's kind of extraordinary that it seems so realistic. And actually maybe, India, it's, you know, part of the appeal of people like Boris Johnson, actually Jeremy Corbyn even, is that they communicate more authentically that you wouldn't catch Boris Johnson making this sort of speech. If you did, he'd get halfway through, lose his place and then end up talking about Peppa Pig. Yeah, it would be interesting to run um, to run the uh, the software and ask it to be either of those people. It would, I think it would find it significantly more difficult. Um, and I think that's right. I think when everything is so homogenised, everybody broadly sounds the same. Everybody is very keen to signal their good intentions but kind of low on the detail, you know, you, you get this sort of, you, you get this homogenized mass of people who are not necessarily easily 
um, differentiable from each other. So, yes, I do think that's why. And I think it's true. I think it's true everywhere. I think it's partly true of Donald Trump. It's certainly true of Boris. It was true of Corbyn. You know, people attach themselves to people who stick out for whatever reason, who aren't part of this sort of amorphous mm. block. And are you worried that um, your columns might end up being written by a by a robot, India? Yeah, I am. Well, no, I'm not actually, because I think I think a, I think a bot would do a very good job of my columns in about ten years' time, maybe twenty. I mean, it's difficult. Do you know what? I'd be more worried if I wrote like political comment. Oh, hang on! Whoa, 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 whoa! No, no, no! I do think that not you, because your your columns have a very particular writing style. Yes, which is not easy to copy. Which I think is also <laughs> true of mine and also true of James's. Actually, yeah, convenient. No, a robot could definitely write changes. Yeah, he's only got three. He's only got three columns. Cities are good. The countryside is good. Um, books. <laughs> oh God, it That's hurts. Unfair. That's no, unfair, it does. Guys. It does. It does hurt. I hope you, the robot's you, not listening to you. You look at you look at a lot of this sort of stuff in the role of AI. Should we be worried about it at some point? Otherwise, this year, next year, we're going to end up having a big conversation about regulating this, aren't we? Yeah, I think so. Well, one interesting thing. I'm speaking to uh, an AI expert. Um, a few weeks ago for a column I wrote about AI. And she was saying that what will happen with writing is that you'll have various sort of big personalities. You know, you'll have Jeremy Clarkson or somebody and they will have a kind of probably a writing career that stretches across maybe multiple publications. They'll be publishing lots of stuff. Some of that stuff they will have written themselves. Some will be written by a robot, perhaps. Some will be written by a robot and then brushed up by this person afterwards and a few jokes stuck in. And it will be a bit like in um, when artists, you know, when um, artists in the Renaissance used to have a studio and like 10 people around them all doing paintings in the style yeah. of them. And they go around and add in, you know, the hands and the face and stuff. And it'll be like, you know, if you're a personality, you're fine. But like it's the kind of generic stuff yeah, that isn't yeah. linked to like a human personality with which people will want to identify. That is, that and is it's also it's also just a reminder that all the the, the lefty uh, hand wringing liberals who thought, well, I don't know, nobody could possibly do the thing that I do. Yeah, I shall always be doing the thing that I do. Your you, you, your your manual labour might be done by. A well, it's a really but the just... truth is that you know we're still going to need plumbers. We'll always need a plumber. Will you always need someone to take an, an amusing sideways look at the news? Yeah, it's a, it's a fact. Well, it's one of the kind of... It's, someone's, it's called someone's paradox in AI, which is the thing that humans find very difficult are often easier for robots. The things we find easier, harder for robots. So, like, fine manual skills are very difficult for robots. They You know, to carry boxes around and put them in specific places and jump up and down is, is really hard. But, yeah, to write prime ministerial speech, hard for humans, it's but incredible. easy for robots. Well, from fake speeches to a real one, Nicola Sturgeon said goodbye to Scottish politics uh, with a sign-off at uh, last FMQs yesterday, uh, First Minister's Questions. Which got us wondering, how could Nicola Sturgeon's goodbye compare to all of these? I shall continue to reply to some of the 30,000 letters that have so far been delivered to Downing Street in the last few days. If it is on occasions the place of low skullduggery, it is more often the place for the pursuit of noble causes. And I wish everyone, friend or foe, well. And that is that, the end. You can achieve a lot of things in politics. You can get a lot of things done. And that, in the end, the public service, the national interest, that is what it's all about. Nothing is really impossible if you put your mind to it. After all, as I once said, I was the future once. And each one of us, wherever we sit, whatever we stand for, can take pride in that. And that duty 
to serve my constituents will remain my greatest motivation. A bubble, it's not Twitter that counts. Uh, I want to thank everybody here and hasta la vista, baby. <laughs>
where you have competence, sort of almost by definition, you have a, a, a kind of keeping of the status quo. You know, I think they're further away from independence, which is, after all, their raison d'etre, mm. than they were than they were eight years ago. So I don't know what happens. It it looks quite a mess to me from where I am in England. My only thought about the Nicholas Sturgis thing is I think part of the reason why those the other ones we played uh, were so powerful is they were just a little bon mot at the end of PMQ, sort of mm. snuck in almost, mm. you know, against... You know, yes, the, that's the, a very good point. You know, out of out of out of the ordinary, a yeah. final yes. last thing. Whereas yeah. she just timetabled a special speech for herself. Yeah, exactly. Which therefore <laughs> meant, meant that it then, Maybe. if you've done that, it's got to go on for longer. And as a result, it then turns into a sort of great long shopping list of thank yous. In a way that the I was the future once, or you know, that's it, the end. Yeah, it's the it's the little kind of alteration of tone as well because. Um, that little sort of that moment from the end of Tony Blair's speech is so un-Tony Blair to, yeah. you know, close down a speech in a kind of quivering, quietening voice and just sit down. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, there's no attempt to, you know, do the kind of Tony Blairy geeing up, soaring oratory thing. And, and it coming at the end of what's normally quite a rum, you know, uh, robust, noisy PMQs. It's like, oh, oh god, they're human. Rather than if it's timetabled, my sad speech. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think that's exactly that's right. Now. The Conservative MP, Oliver Carpenter, MP for North West Devon, uh, had his birthday the other day and Conservative WhatsApp groups lit up with birthday wishes for him. There's just one problem. Lara Spirit, Times Red Box reporter, is here to explain all. Hi, Lara. Hi, Matt. How are you? Oh, very good. Oh, very good. So what was the problem with wishing happy birthday to the Conservative MP, Oliver Carpenter? Um, the minor problem with wishing uh, happy birthday to the Conservative MP, Oliver Carpenter, uh, who MPs have been going around saying was a, a really nice guy, very constituency focused, uh, didn't love to hang around Westminster that much, though was a close personal friend uh, of the Speaker, uh, was because he didn't actually exist. Uh, and it was a prank by some Conservative MPs who had spent quite a lot of time uh, generating this uh, as a funny issue, sort of came to ahead at the away day uh, when they sort of tried to maintain the fact that he was still uh, around and existing, despite the fact that there'd been this post from Therese Coffey following these birthday messages with a sort of quizzical series of question marks. Um, but it was just it was just a, a big prank, basically. Um, and so do we do we know who was behind the prank? Are you able to tell us that? I'm not, and it was a series of uh, it was a series of conservative MPs, and it's not entirely clear exactly who was uh, in charge of this in charge of this great uh, this great prank. Uh, but it's fair to say that a number of conservative MPs have fallen victim to it. Uh, so I think uh, now probably uh, more obvious than ever that uh, Oliver doesn't exist. But uh, interesting the length that they went to, including uh, having some sort of parliamentary paper uh, printed with uh, <laughs> kind of serving Northwest Devon, serving you. Uh, that went out to a few MPs, some sort of friendly messages from this man. Uh, uh, Oliver, uh, and there was a kind of question, the sort of this, this theory that there was a big fight over the boundary review uh, that Oliver was having with one of his uh, his Devon neighbours as well. So uh, I think it was it was a you know pretty in their minds complex prank, but uh, one which was I think quite easily foiled. Uh, India is this uh, incredibly funny or an incredible waste of time by people who should have better things to do with themselves? No, I'm sorry. It's incredibly funny. It's a very good time, particularly the headed um, note paper. Um, Lara, was um, was was Oliver in any of the WhatsApp groups? I mean, did somebody pose as him? Did he did he send messages? 
No, he uh, he never. So what part, of the, part of the great and complicated fiction was that uh, he was terrified of social media. He thought generally that, you know, having an online presence <laughs> was deeply harmful to your being able to fulfill your responsibilities to your constituents. Well, uh, so right. That's one of the reasons why you weren't going to. And maybe he was right. <laughs> and that was one of the reasons why well, you couldn't. Yeah, you won't, you, won't, you won't catch him handing over all of his details to Isabel Oakeshott. Um, that's, uh, so he's not going to get in trouble on that front. James, have you ever been pranked? No, I, I like to think that I'm very good at spotting pranks. I'm not not a man who's easily fooled. I like to think. Really, I often think when I'm on Twitter, you do realise we're going to take that as a challenge now, James. Yeah, we'll yeah. bring it on. Yeah, I next, think next I week we'll you... be asking you to pass comment on three news stories which don't exist. Yeah, well, if you get too deep into <laughs> politics, you may you may find you may find that <laughs> you may find that I'm somewhat out of my depth. <laughs> Um, and so, is it oh, clearly, um, Laura? Are you breaking this news to all Tory MPs that their colleague doesn't exist? I think some of them were probably uh, probably made aware of it at the point at which Therese Coffee queried in the WhatsApp group. Now there was no sort of there was no response in the WhatsApp group to her question, and that was glided over, and they were talking about other things. But uh, I would imagine that her uh, kind of slightly bemused response did prompt some sort of kind of reckoning with the fact that this was a completely fictional uh, Conservative MP, uh, and I imagine that probably these Tory MPs are moving on to uh, to other more exciting pranks now. India Knight and James Marriott there. And of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Up next is Red Boxes. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, open up the red box for centuries. It's been a symbol of power in British politics, a sign that you'd reached the top. You'd got your hands on the levers of power by getting your hands on a red box. Used to transport the nation's secrets, they're sent each night to the Prime Minister and each of his ministers to complete their government homework. The King gets one too to keep up to date on important matters of state. And perhaps the most famous one is the one waved around by the Chancellor on Budget Day to prove he's remembered to pack his speech. Now, ministers are allowed to use ordinary lockable briefcases to carry information which has been classified as confidential or below. But for anything with a higher security level, such as secret, they have to use a red box. Although they can have a black one if they don't want to be spotted. In 2014, the Red Box gave its name to the Times' award-winning Red Box political newsletter. I took it over in 2016. Later, the podcast too. So in a moment, we're going to hear from some of the people who decide what goes in the Red Boxes of Margaret Thatcher, Tony Blair and Theresa May. We'll also hear from some of the politicians who took great pride in the Red Boxes, David Cameron, Ed Balls and George Osborne. But first, let's find out a bit more about the gold-embossed red leather icons. I spoke to Mohammed Suleiman, who owns Barrow, Hepburn & Gale, the 260-year-old company which makes them. The history of boxes goes back to the way in which the country was run. So the country was run effectively by the monarch, and his council, Privy Council, acted as his advisors because he couldn't meet them all the time, obviously. Uh, he was too busy doing, or he or she was too busy doing other things. 
The important documents were put inside a dispatch box and dispatched to him, yeah. hence dispatch box. These would carry the king or queen cipher, so that's how they evolved. They evolved from the use of dispatch boxes by the monarch for the Privy Council to provide advice and recommendations to the monarch, and they then filtered into uh, general government use round about the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s. This sort of dripped in, yeah. if you like, uh, very much a question of, well, you know, if the king or queen's got one, well, you know, I think <laughs> I need one. And when do we start to see, I mean, the most obvious red box moment that people will think of is the budget, the Chancellor outside number 11 waving the budget around. When does that start being a sort of symbol, if you like, of the red box? Uh, again, it's Gladstone's reforming yeah. budget. So that then becomes iconic, becomes a symbol. And I think that's why that box is held up by successive chancellors. Um, symbolically, it's meant to communicate, well, whatever's in here is going to change everyone's life and it's going to create a better society from this point on. And standing on the shoulders of giants and the people who went before, up until the point it basically started falling to pieces and they had to quietly retire it. It's now part of the National Archives yeah. and uh, a replacement uh, part of the, the deal was was that National Archives would take the Gladstone box uh, into its collection and, a, uh, and they would uh, uh, provide a replacement. But it's not just the Chancellors, all ministers, all government ministers well, have them. One of the things that um, people above stairs don't effectively communicate well, it's certainly not these days, that the uh, government runs, our government runs on paper. Mm. So it doesn't run on WhatsApp, that's highly <laughs> topical. It doesn't run on a text message. Uh, it doesn't run on a phone call. It doesn't run, it runs on obviously meetings in corridors and chit chat, but effectively it runs on paper. So the importance of a dispatch box, it's also now framed in it's now part and parcel of the government security policy framework, is that it secures yeah. the information that a minister relies on. It's an inbox, outbox system, isn't it? Everything goes in, the yeah. minister's supposed to read everything. Uh, you're so supposed to read everything. And then they, <laughs> they uh, yeah, it depends how much paperwork they've, they've put in there. Yeah, well, it, it, well, yes, quite. And it depends how it's packed as well. So you've brought in a black, a black box, you and it's not a minister. It. So it's like, it looks like a briefcase, black, black leather. It's got the ER Queen's cipher. E2R. E2R. Let's get that right, yeah. yes. Yeah, it's not that old. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, uh, then it's got on it permanent secretary, Department of National Heritage. So this isn't a ministerial box, this no. is a civil service Correct. box, but they don't get the fancy red leather. Some do, some <laughs> don't. Um, again, within the system of colour coding, the red boxes tend to be departmental boxes. So permanent secretaries within departments um, would have a red box, which is a departmental box. So I've just thought, actually, so this one's got Department of National Heritage written yes. on it. Does that mean every time there's a, resh there's a reshuffle in the new government departments, you get a call and say, look, we need a whole new load of, uh, of boxes for the new Department for Science and Innovation and the Department uh, for Energy? In theory, yes. yes. In theory, yes. But I wouldn't want uh, your listeners to think that um, I have the wealth of Croesus as a result <laughs> of that. Uh, but have you, had, have you had Rishi Sunak on the, on the phone in the last few weeks saying mm. you need to get the gold leaf out? Well, I think they, they got in touch last year yeah. um, and they're still making their minds up about what security features they want. Okay. Prime Minister's boxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about this one then because it's got the hand on the top, but you can't get in it on the top. It's got the hinges on the top mm -hmm. because the lock in the hinge 
the lock and the opening is at the bottom. Then mm -hmm. why is that? Well, when it's open, it's only the minister can see what's inside. So when the box is presented... So I'm Sir Humphrey, and you're Secretary of State Matt Chorley, the Secretary of State for... Times Radio. Yes, very good. I, I as your perm. Yes, your permanent. So you're, yeah. you put it down in front of me. Yeah, like that. You have the key. I ha only I have the key. Only you would have the key, and your perm would have the key. Yeah. So you open it, and you're sitting on the the 1820, <laughs> back to you know, on the shipping Sodbury. And nobody else can see yes, in it. quite. Is there not the risk, then, that I stand up like that to forget to lock it, and it flops open? Uh, there's always I mean, only, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be running the country if I was that stupid. <laughs> It has been known to happen, and those people still have been running the country. <laughs> so if I'm junior minister for paperclips, and then Rishi Sunak... I thought we were, you were Secretary of State. Well, I'm Secretary of State for paperclips, fine. For Secretary of State for Times Radio, but the Rishi Sunak comes along and says, actually, I either want to promote you or I've had enough of you, you can yeah. clear off. Do I get to keep my no. box? No. I don't? No. So it go, just gets passed yeah, on to the next that, person? That's why I think... You provide decent. No, no, no. At certain times, we come, we become very unpopular. Yeah. Because if you have lots of chopping and changing, as we seem to have been having within the civil service over the last probably seven or eight years, as I said, this this role that we've ended up fulfilling uh, is not a sinecure. So if you imagine Secretary of State Matt Chorley says, "Right, I'm moving. I'm taking my box with me." Yeah. Now. The public have paid for that. Yeah. Secretary of State Matt Chorley has not paid for it. No. So the rule is, if you want it, you pay the department for it. Oh, but what you're suggesting is that sometimes junior civil servants might not want to tell Matt Chorley on the way out. Unfortunately, sometimes <laughs> that is the case. So. And so if I am Secretary of State Matt Chorley, how much would it cost me to take my red box? You'd have to come to arrangement with the department. Oh, OK, fine. They know how much they've paid Because they've for paid it. you for it, so it's therefore theirs yes. to decide. Yes. And what about, we mentioned, you've touched on the, kit, the, the Queen, because it has got E2R on it. Mm -hmm. Are you making a whole new set for ministers with yes, course, C3R yes, yeah. on it? Some of them have started to get them. Started to roll them out. Yeah. yeah. Um, and is it just done on the basis of the tatty ones get replaced first, or the more senior well, people? what we have said to departments that have got E2R boxes that we have supplied maybe in the last five, six or seven years, because they're still, I mean, it's like they're like Rolls Royces. They're still well, they're, with mileage on. They're rock they're solid, proper <laughs> solid wood. They're not falling to pieces. So, so we said, well, as long as they're not completely shot, to save the public purse, we will recover the lids. Oh, I see. So you can keep the box. Oh, that makes sense. You can keep the box and just redo the thing. Yeah. And does this also mean that you're all producing new dispatch boxes for the new king? Of course, yes, of course. He's, he's got he's got a job to do. It's not just. You know, are you, doing is he getting new ones or are uh, you recovering old ones? He, he made, conscious, made the conscious decision that he would have some of the ones that we did recently for Queen, his mother, uh, that he would have those recovered because they are in good condition. And what about Stripey? Can we talk about Stripey? You can talk about Stripey. That's the yeah. Prime Minister's one. The old Stripey, as you know, was created by um, Cabinet Secretary Armstrong. Well, at least he, he, lays, he, he claims to have created it. And he said what, what he wanted was for the Prime Minister to see, rather than receive information about ministers' goings-on <laughs> <laughs> in various boxes. Yeah. So, you know, they'd get one from uh, MI6, you know, in, in the sort of wading through all the paper. There might be buried at the bottom some little observation that Minister, well, Secretary of State Matt Chorley yeah. uh, was, uh, uh, was drinking himself stupid in the dog and duck. Nobody believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so... Armstrong said, well, we wanted, we wanted, we thought it best just to have 
all that stuff contained in one box. When the uh, Prime Minister's office contacted us, I wasn't around at the time, but people tell me, and I said, what he said, well, there's an existing box, here it is, uh, and what I want you to do is to put inlay a stripe on it. And that's how well Stripey came into existence. And so that's the one with the top secret stuff in there? That's the one that, that every Prime Minister just loves to. <laughs> it's the gossip box, basically. So finally then, looking into the future, you touched on it a bit, saying that government isn't all WhatsApp. There is quite a lot of WhatsApp that goes on. It's WhatsApp, it's email, text message, and all of that. What future for the, for the red box, for, well, for we, paper going in and out of a red well, box we, every night? Well, when Tony Blair became Prime Minister, uh, there was talk of modernising government. There's always talk of modernising government. Uh, so um, he put a backbencher uh, in charge of a project that involved looking at electronic boxes. Uh, if these are respected throughout the world, mm. only we would think about tinkering with it. The budget was signed off for this particular project. I had £22 million pounds in 19, late 1990s money, quite a lot of money. And it got nowhere because the civil service were against it. Yeah. Not for the reasons in which, you know, the um, uh, civil servants get pilloried, you know, arm free and, you know, yeah. this, that and the other. Because they felt they just couldn't manage yeah. the ministerial workload by any other means. Besides which, you know, if we go full circle, although technology was shiny, bright and new then, and it was going to conquer the world, we're now, we've now come full circle to say, yes, we've certainly witnessed great advances in technology great advances in communication, uh, digital communication, um, but fundamentally, you know, is any of this really, really secure? And then we fast forward to the Cameron government. Francis Maud was put in charge yeah. of looking at replacements. Uh, and I think he did sort of pronounce that, you know, the red box is over, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the, our skill workers panic about things like that. I said, well, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. And, you know, that... that, that <laughs> That's what, 10, 13 years ago, and nothing's yeah, happened, so, 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 it's still, so they're still so, going. Yeah. Last question. The green ones. Min MPs can get green ones to go Not alongside yet. the red ones. Not yet. Not yet, no. but they're coming. Yeah, they will be coming, yes. I, I've um, listed more help, because everyone I spoke to, when after we dropped it, uh, and to the present, said, well, that was a great idea. And I said, well, the, the opposition came. It was, it was dropped because it was at the height of the MPs' expenses scale. But also, and people but also said, what it was, it, money it on was that? dropped because of um, uh, the attitude of uh, people within the Speaker's office, the then Speaker's office, and we just thought the whole thing was not worth fighting over. Yeah. The important, the structure of it will be that by purchasing one, be completely transparent, we were transparent the last time uh, about what we wanted to achieve with it is that an element of it will be a charitable donation. I'm not saying this is going to be a game changer. You know, I think it's important that the uh, members of parliament uh, are given an opportunity to say, well, we're in this privileged position, uh, and if we do this, we're not just supporting British businesses, but we're also making a contribution to charitable cause, all causes. Yeah, and you get a souvenir without having to nick it from a government department? Um, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't probably possibly say you could, I couldn't. No. Uh, Mohammed, it's been really good to see you. Thank you for taking us through the history of the red box, the black box and the green box. Uh, Mohammed from uh, Barrow Hepburn and Gal, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Matt. Each night, the Prime Minister and his ministers are given a red box, sometimes several, containing policy proposals, media statements, even national security decisions, to be given the ministerial seal of approval. As ever, it was Yes Minister that spotted the comic potential 
of civil servants deciding what should go in them. I'll just fetch your boxes, Minister. Boxes? Already? Yes, you see, we did manage to keep the last minister supplied with work throughout the campaign, but I fear... Well, it's not for me to criticise. What do you mean? Well, it's a harsh thing to say about anyone, but some of the boxes actually came back with the work not done. If you could complete the first four by Saturday evening, your driver could collect them and deliver the other two. <laughs> Villa's at home to Liverpool, and I've got a surgery in my constituency on Saturdays. Yeah, as ever, uh, the BBC's uh, Yes Minister um, summing up what still probably goes on in a uh, lot in politics. Well, from the moment a party leader becomes Prime Minister, those red boxes just start coming. Gus O'Donnell, of course, now Lord O'Donnell, was Cabinet Secretary to Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, and David Cameron. He explained to me what happens from day one. The um, Principal Private Secretary, again in conjunction with the Cabinet Secretary, yeah. you'll be saying. I'd be saying, for God's sake, don't fill it up. You know, for God's sake, keep it sensible, keep it short, keep it relatively background. And what sort know. of stuff will it be in there? Well, it the might be night? that uh, the next day there's a yeah. parliamentary occasion. Yeah, yeah. So there might be a draft speech for the parliamentary yeah. occasion. Um, there might be some some things where you know there's going to be an attack from Labour Party, an urgent question. Yeah. There's been some kind of disaster somewhere. Yeah. There's some foreign policy thing around the world yeah, that's yeah. going on. So, you know, it could be a mix of different things. Gus O'Donnell there. Well, those overflowing boxes can come as a bit of a shock uh, to a Labour leader of the opposition when they first make the move to number 10. Here's David Cameron's former press secretary, Gabby Burton. The volume of things that you had to deal with and the volume of work in your, in your box overnight is no comparison. And you get that on your first night? Well, it, yes and no. I mean, it sort of it builds up over time, obviously, and people, uh, you know, not everything needed to go into the Prime Minister's box. There was, a, again, a bit of a gatekeeping yeah. kind of uh, process, and you had to judge. I mean, in my case, I would always judge, you know, I'd look at this diary and I'd say, right, how, I mean, you know, because you want to get your, your request or your sign, something signed yeah. off, and, and obviously you'd see him every day in meetings, but... There were certain things that you know needed to be sort of considered in a in a note, and I'd always look at the diary and think he's going to be in a bad mood because he will have finished that and he's got that tomorrow. Definitely don't put the <laughs> note in that night. And then you'd look again and you think oh, he's going to be in a great mood because that's he enjoys doing that note night. <laughs> of course, Gabby was a, a political appointee, a special advisor, and there could be a bit of a tussle between the special advisors and the senior civil servants about what goes in the box. And what doesn't? And what goes in it, well, not all of it, is serious. Philip Collins was a speechwriter for Tony Blair. I used to put spoof notes in sometimes, which will baffle historians when they're released. <laughs> Remember the, the notes I put in where we suggested that Blair's was so right-wing on crime that we suggested a, a policy whereby people should start in prison then work their way out, which I call earned autonomy. And he, and he, he sent the note back. He'd read it and, he'd say, and he said, I actually think this is a rather good idea, tick. <laughs> at least he read it, getting them to read it is not always easy. One thing I've picked up over the years on the Redbox podcast, in fact, is that everyone thinks the Prime Minister they worked for worked hardest. Here's Gabby Burton and Phil Collins again, and first Caroline Slowcock, who was a private secretary to Margaret Thatcher. 
what she did is she had an extraordinary mastery of the detail. You know, she thoroughly did her boxes. You know, we were piling the papers in five boxes every night, if not more. You know, she was assiduous. It's probably changed since my day, um, though in other ministerial offices it's probably much the same. But because the chiefs of staff now have much more power in, you know, the, the kind of reconfigured number 10, it's probably they who make sure, you know, they, they decide what goes in the boxes. But in my day, it was the private secretaries. And what would happen is we would get advice in from, you know, let's say the Home Office. I was Home Affairs Private Secretary. So I was focusing on those sorts of areas. You'd get something in from the Home Secretary and then you'd make sure that we got something in from the Treasury, you know, explaining how much what he was suggesting might cost. And then I might consult the policy unit so that, you know, if, if I thought that they might have a perspective, then I'd bring all those papers together and I would summarise them in one note with a question and answer, which is hopefully yes or no. Then it would go into the box. She would either read all the attendant papers or she'd just take my word for it and then she would just tick yes or no and then it would come out. Now, in, in Thatcher's day, every day she did her boxes until the time when she lost her job. You know, she was sort of a caretaker prime minister. Andrew Turnbull, who was the principal private secretary in my day, so that with each sort of subsequent minister, uh, certainly you know, we're talking the men here, uh, this whole process became much looser so that by the time we got to uh, David Cameron, I think he was sort of famously relaxed about his boxes. That's just not true. Ooh. Sorry. <laughs> I can absolutely tell you that is not <laughs> true. No, no, no. He was doing his box at 5.30am every morning. I mean, he was, I mean, it's going to be very interesting when the 30-year rule comes up yeah. because his notes, he read through every single box note now you know look whether or not they went in the same process that's you know possibly up for debate but he was assiduous with his boxes and and I think it was was a bit of a, in contrast to Brown I don't know what, you yeah. know what Tony Blair got up to but certainly David took the box very very seriously and then Blair did too and Blair was very assiduous and I think the thing that, that unites all of the three people we work for it was that they're quite efficient and quite clear and got through their work now the, the thing that happens with Brown is not that he didn't work hard on the contrary he worked ludicrously hard it's just he was a very inefficient worker so he created work for himself so he didn't get round lots of things he also centralized so much that everything came through downing street and government jams up if you do yes. that yes. Well, so that's been happening i gather with with theresa may and civil servants absolutely hate that because they can't get on with their yeah, business but what i saw you know with with john major because i you know was over the transition is that he put a lot of you know he, he couldn't make up his mind as clearly as margaret thatcher she was very decisive just to echo what you've been saying so she would you know have a very high hit rate whereas he would be saying things like please refer which means I'd like to have a word about it or maybe another meeting so that just, just sort of slows down the engine of government it's quite a moment that from a from a old episode of the red box podcast arguing about how lazy david cameron was well just how diligent was david cameron i used to sort of set an alarm for 5:30 5:45 and i tried i'm very quick out of bed in the morning i'm a, i'm a morning person and so i used to try and get down to the kitchen um, and lay out my red boxes and have as long as I possibly could before the children got up and, and, and breakfast started and everything, um, going through the paperwork for the day, the meetings that were coming up, any urgent things I had to sign or read. David Cameron uh, speaking to me a year or so ago. Well, Boris Johnson is one of those whose team felt he wasn't always the most diligent completer of his red boxes. In 2020, his aides were told to send him shorter memos, limiting papers to just two sides of A4 to make sure that he reads them. Well, Paul Harrison was press secretary to Theresa May. He explains why the red box is so important. It's sort of the box, weirdly, in 
you know, a, a pretty advanced Western democracy that is a completely paper-based thing. Uh, that's that's a lot of how big decisions that affect all of our lives are made still. The, the red box follows you around like a specter. It's always stuff full of work. Uh, the decisions are urgent and therefore unavoidable. Paul Howison uh, there. Well, it's not just Prime Ministers, of course. The Chancellor's budget box has been a fixture of budget day since William Gladstone back in the 1860s. In fact, the same box was used by every Chancellor since. That was until Gordon Brown became Chancellor in 1997 and wanted to strike a more modern note, as his former advisor, Ed Balls, remembers. Gordon decides, rather than using the red box every other Chancellor has used, he... Um would have a new red box made by apprentices at Fife Dockyard, I think it was, in his constituency, which is a, a wonderful idea. But then um, he was supposed to put the speech in it, and then the key got lost, and it was all kind of like a bit of a catastrophe. And in the end, I think the general view was go back to the old red box. So, um, But I think, did Gordon practice standing, holding the red box in his front room before going down? Yeah, of course he did. Then, after years in opposition, in 2010, George Osborne was thrilled to enter the Treasury as a Conservative Chancellor and get his hands on that famous Gladstone box. I was the last Chancellor to use the Gladstone budget box. Uh, when I arrived in number 11, having spent five years as Shadow Chancellor trying to get there, I was told by the Permanent Secretary that it was too fragile to be used again, even though it had been used for the last 150-odd years. I, was, I thought that was absolutely ridiculous and I was going to have my moment with the Gladstone budget box. So I, I, I struck a deal with the National Archives, who were looking after the budget box for some reason, that I could use the box one last time. Uh, there was one problem, which is uh, the country had lost the key to the box. No one could find it in the Treasury or whatever. So inside the box is supposed to be the speech. Uh, when you stand out, that's the whole point. You go out and you show the red box to prove you've got the speech because there was some chancellor in the past who forgot to bring a speech. And that's the whole tradition. But when I stood out there on the first budget, I had no speech in that box. It was an empty box because uh, uh, no one could find the key. George Osborne there talking about how he had nothing in his red box. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from?